Hi, Reboot listeners. It's Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief and your host of Global Reboot. We will be back in your feed later this fall with a new season of Global Reboot. But in the meantime, we wanted to share one of our partner shows with you. It's called the Doha Debates Podcast. Each episode features a lively conversation on the world's most pressing issues, like whether museums should return disputed artifacts or if we should ban gas-powered vehicles. And they recently took a look at sovereign debt, something we covered last season. So we thought you might enjoy it. Take a listen. Welcome to Doha Debates. Each episode, we explore an urgent issue, present two opposing sides on that issue, and try to see where, if any, common ground can be found. We hope to bring you a conversation that is well-informed, spirited, but civil and respectful as well. I'm Nazanin Mashiri, and I have had an exciting career as a journalist for over two decades, reporting from various corners of the world, including Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Currently, I'm a senior analyst for the International Crisis Group based in Nairobi, an organisation devoted to preventing wars and promoting peace. Today, we're diving into a topic that hits close to home for many of the people and places that I've covered, sovereign debt. More specifically, we're here to discuss the burning question of whether developing countries should have their debts forgiven. Before we introduce our guests, first, a little background. Let's clear up something right from the start. When we talk about debt, we should first clarify that not all debt is felt the same way. Developed countries like the US or the UK can owe trillions of dollars. And while politicians may argue about what level of debt is sustainable or reasonable, the truth is that the debt of these nations tends to present more of a political challenge than a full-blown crisis. But when it comes to debt in developing countries, it's a whole different story. The burden of debt faced by these nations has only increased in recent years as the pandemic, a rapid rise in food and fuel costs and the threat of climate change have intensified the need for countries to borrow money. It's now estimated that three out of five low-income countries are having trouble paying their debts. The problem is particularly acute in Africa, where 21 countries are either bankrupt or at high risk of debt distress. This year, the World Bank estimates that African countries will pay close to $70 billion in debt services. But debt prevents countries from investing in things like public health, education, or major infrastructure projects. Instead, they pay larger and larger portions of their annual budget towards debt. And sometimes it even leads them to take out additional loans just to keep up with payments. It's like being trapped in an endless cycle of debt. So the big question is, what can be done? Well, this brings us to today's discussion. One solution is debt relief, essentially wiping the slate clean while allowing countries to invest more at home rather than worrying about what they owe creditors. But this solution doesn't come without drawbacks. Critics of debt relief argue that wiping the books creates unintended long-term consequences, such as making markets 
less appealing for future investment. It can also pose challenges for private investors who are suddenly forced to swallow big losses. So what do we do and where do we go from here? Today, I'm joined by Heidi Chow. She's the Director of Debt Justice, a UK-based organisation which advocates for debt cancellation for countries in the global south. Hi, Heidi. Hello, Nazneen. Thank you for having me. We're also pleased to welcome Bright Simmons. Bright serves as a policy analyst at the Ghanaian-based think tank, the Imani Centre for Policy and Education. Welcome to you. Hi, Nazneen. Uh, and just to let you know, Bright is just at the airport at the moment, so you may hear some background noise during the recording. I should also mention that a little later on in the conversation, we'll also be hearing from one of our global listeners who will be sharing some of their insights on sovereign debt and throw some questions at our panellists as well. So Heidi Chow, let's start with you. I've already talked about some of the ways debt is crippling countries in the global south, but some people may say, well, tough luck. I've got a credit card debt or, or student loan debt, and I've made a deal when I borrowed that money. Shouldn't countries be expected to honour their debt of the contract as well? I'm imagining that perhaps you might take issue with this analogy, Heidi. Tell us why this doesn't necessarily hold up when talking about sovereign wealth and why we should approach this kind of debt differently. Yeah, so thank you, Nazanin. Um, first of all, I think we need to really understand the impact of a debt crisis on ordinary people. Uh, 54 countries are currently in a debt crisis right now. And so debt repayments are so high that they're undermining the ability of governments to deliver public services and fight the climate emergency. Now, we think that paying debt should never come before meeting the needs of people, including things like education and healthcare, social protection. And so when essential public spending is slashed just to service debt, it really impacts upon ordinary people, not just today, but also their future prospects and the overall future prospects for the overall economy. And ultimately, debt payments shouldn't really come before essential human needs. But secondly, you know, a lot of this money that was lent to the Global South was lent at high interest rates. Um, private lenders lend to lower income countries at higher interest rates, you know, around 6 to 10% at a time when they were lending to governments of you know, UK and US at a rate of around 0 to 1%. So they were charging these high interest rates to countries in the Global South because of the risk of not being paid. And so over recent years, we've had a succession of shocks, of the pandemic, uh, rising food and fuel prices, we're seeing global inflation and global interest rates rising, as well as countries being on the front end of climate disasters. And so the risk of countries not being paid has actually materialised. And so private lenders really need to take that hit and be made to take part in debt relief. Um, they can't have their cake and eat it. You know, they've already been remunerated for the risk that they've undertaken through high interest rates. And so now they need to take responsibility when they lose that gamble. Otherwise, we're going to see private lenders um, end up making super profits while people in affected countries are suffering from declining public services and economic stagnation. But also this idea of debt restructuring, debt cancellation, negotiating, renegotiating the terms of your debt. This is not some novel, unusual idea. It actually happens every single day. It's a normal functioning of our economy. We already have legislation in place that exists for corporations that get their debts cancelled when they get into trouble and they can't pay their debts 
anymore. And debts are also written off by companies that can no longer collect consumer debt because consumers are struggling with debt. So, so debts are written off and sold off into the secondary debt market every single day. It's just an aberration or an anomaly that we don't have rules or laws um, in place to actually help governments when governments get into trouble in terms of not being able to pay back debt. And especially more so, uh, it's an anomaly because debt crises affect so many more people and has such widespread economic and social impacts, which are really serious that affect whole populations. And like I said, this is not an unusual idea. Actually, there's widespread consensus that debt cancellation is needed and cancelling debt is the only way to help countries get out of the debt crisis. Thanks, Heidi. And Bright Simmons, your turn now. If we were having this conversation, say, 30 or 40 years ago, you might have been on Heidi's side of things, but you said that much has changed in the last few decades, especially as it relates to who is holding the debt. Can you shed some light on that? Absolutely, Nazanin. At first, we have to distinguish between debt restructuring and various ways of making it easier to pay the debt back and debt cancellation. What Heidi and others in Heidi's camp are talking about uh, when they say debt cancellation typically means writing off the debt completely. And typically, it also means that countries do not have the learning opportunity to understand what has gone wrong to fix it. Because what he's done so far in the conversation is to blame private lenders for the most part as being somehow responsible, either because they are overcharging or in some instances, he's questioned um, the very morality of their actions by saying that, you know, they, they took a risk, they took a gamble, in fact, is what she said. And then after having taken the gamble, they must now be ready to bear the consequences. And the approach of blanket debt cancellations and essentially writing up the debt and not letting countries learn from these lessons and these episodes is not the right way. There is significant variety among developing countries uh, when it comes to debt and the burden that debt imposes. So if you come to Africa, for instance, there are countries that also borrow money for infrastructure purposes and other developmental reasons. Not all of these countries are facing significant debt pressure. In fact, if you take the 55 countries in Africa, you will struggle to mention 10 of them that are facing the kind of debt distress that those that capture the news headlines are currently facing. The Zambias, the Ghanas, the Ethiopias, the Kenyas, and the rest. There are other countries that have grown at the same pace as the big economies in Africa, and they've done so while paying their debt and while keeping their debt servicing costs within reason, and their growth is on track. The second argument I make, and this is a very important point, is that because the nature of who is lending has changed, the debates that we all supported in the early 2000s around odious debt and the rest no longer apply. Why? Because in early 2000s, certainly the 90s, 80% of Africa's debt, for instance, was owed to official creditors, IMF, World Bank, rich country governments. Why is that important? It's important because they lent the money on the base of programs. In those circumstances, if the countries can't pay back, they you need to share the blame between those who gave them the money for those programs and made an input into those programs and the government. In the case of private investors, they don't have that influence. We cannot expect the same degree of blame sharing or burden sharing. Thank you. Thank you for that, Bright. So, I mean, as we heard there, Heidi, even though, say, the lenders may have changed, 
it does still seem to me anyway that that many of the underlying economic problems persist. I mean, we we still have many developing countries that lack a diverse economy. Added to that, the climate change issues that these countries are facing and will be facing in the future. How has this, do you think, impacted their continuing accumulation of debt? And why hasn't the situation changed? So, yeah, you're right. The underlying dynamics of what's going on hasn't changed. And Global South countries exist within a global economy where the rules are essentially stacked up against them. Actually, when we look at the rules around tax avoidance, tax evasion, when we look at trade, uh, how uh, trade deals are done, whether that's multilateral trade deals or bilateral trade deals, all of these areas create a global economy where it's been very difficult for a lot of countries after independence to be able to build diversified and resilient economies. So essentially what we see is countries are predisposed to harmful levels of debt uh, to, in order to meet the needs of their people in terms of delivering public services like healthcare and education and social protection. And so all it takes is an external shock to actually push countries into a debt crisis. So that's what we've been seeing over the recent years of the kind of the state of permacrisis or polycrisis that we've been in. And so that's why we, we need to not just talk about debt cancellation, but we also need to talk about changing the underlying dynamics and the underlying global economy and the system in which countries are being forced to borrow in the first place. But we also need to look at the debt system itself and how the debt system is also perpetuating these debt crises that we're seeing. Um, in terms of the difference between now and the early and tw- over 20 years ago, actually, the debt crisis of 1980s actually started off in a very similar to the debt crisis we're seeing now in that it was the private the risky lending of the private lenders in the 1970s that then created this debt crisis in the 1980s. And what happened with the IMF and World Bank, what they did then was they, they lent money in order to bail out the private lenders. They took a risk, their risk materialized, but instead of taking the loss, taking the hit, they ended up getting bailed out by the IMF and World Bank. And right now we're in a similar stage where IMF and the World Bank are lending again in order to bail out private lenders. And we are in danger of doing the same thing again and moving the risk away from private lenders once again to international institutions. Right. Would you like to come in there and, and respond Absolutely. to Heidi's point there? Yes. I think that the point that Heidi and other international campaigners refuse to grapple with is the fact that the bulk of the debt servicing burden, which is what they are worried about, the amount of money that should be going to education, health, etc., going to debt, the bulk are going to private lenders domestically. So nearly 80% in the case of Ghana, over 60% in the case of Nigeria, getting to that same level in, in Kenya. So you can't ignore the domestics. Because if you're concerned about money going to debt, and the majority of that money is going to domestic creditors, then you need to have a theory of how you incorporate that into your analysis. Now, you talk about the, the shocks, which is true. The pandemic and the conflict in different regions have had a great impact on, on the suffering that we are seeing. But the truth is that in Ghana, we used to have a practice of sinking funds. When we got money, we put some aside, like a rainy day fund. And when things were bad, we used that. These sinking fund um, approaches to how we manage our money has increasingly been sidelined or marginalized or tossed aside. If you go to a country like Botswana, facing the same kind of global system, you'll find that the amount of money that Botswana is able to derive from its mineral resources, that is able to derive from taxation, hits almost 20% of GDP. How is it that Botswana is able to do it and Nigeria is not able to do it? Why is it that uh, Mauritius is able to do it and Ghana is not able to do it? 
Why is that Senegal is able to do it in, for the most part and Kenya is not able to do it? We need to understand those dynamics. So if we just simply say everything is the fault of the global system, everything is the fault of the international system, we lose out. Ghana is a country that is building a billion-dollar cathedral. You can't blame the international system for countries that choose to spend nearly a billion dollars building cathedrals. We have to ask hard questions of Global South leaders and ask that they reform their fiscal systems. Okay, thanks, Bright. I just wanted to sort of dig in a little deeper there because I think there are two separate issues here. I mean, there are countries that need capital, obviously, to finance major improvements or infrastructure projects. But there's no doubt that there are examples of predatory lenders who do trap vulnerable countries. Haiti, for example, was intentionally given predatory loans that it could never, ever repay. So in some ways, some would say that, you know, we do need to punish lenders who prey on developing countries, some of whom are in dire situations after conflict or or natural disasters. What would your response be to that? That is why my first point was to recognize the variety of the global south. To say from country to country, we have great differences. There will be countries like Haiti that have indeed been, been wronged. And in those circumstances where we have odious debt, there are rules, international norms about how you deal with odious debt, etc. Thank you so much, Bright. So let's just go back to the, the core issue here, which is about forgiving debt, um, Heidi. It's really important to consider what Bright mentioned um, earlier on, that someone will be taking a hit if this happens, someone who could be a pension holder in the US, Japan. Should we be concerned about the potential impact and loss that, that ordinary people may experience if we go ahead and forgive debt in the global south? Yeah, so first of all, I just want to challenge the use of the terms forgiving debt and debt forgiveness. Actually, this is not about forgiveness because borrowing countries haven't done anything wrong that they need to ask forgiveness for. Lenders have lent money in order to make profitable returns. So they lend to global South countries at high interest rates to reflect their risk. And so when that risk materialises, they should take the hit. It's, it's not really about forgiveness. It's just a function of capitalism. It's even you know the basic rules of gambling. But in terms of a loss... We need to understand that you know bonds are bought and sold in financial markets every day. And so that means that the people that own the debt now are not necessarily the same people that lent the money in the first place. So, for example, Zambia's bonds have been trading at very low prices for the last five or six years, and that reflects uh, the perception or the risk you know, by the financial markets of not being paid. But it also means that the people who own the debt now were not necessarily the ones who originally lent the money. So even if there is some level of debt written off, actually, bondholders actually might not necessarily make a loss because if they bought the debt at knockdown prices and there is some sort of debt restructuring that's taken place, actually they might still make a bit of profit because they bought it at such cheap prices. And actually if bondholders do make a loss, um, like I said, this is just a basic consequence of risky lending. And then when we're talking about sort of pension funds and ordinary people who are, might be affected by this, where pension funds might have invested in lower income country debt, it's only a very tiny proportion of their assets. But the logic behind all of this is, you know, if you're a pension fund manager, is that you have a you know, balanced portfolio. So your, your high risk stuff is balanced by your lower risk stuff in the hope that somehow between all the stuff that you've invested in, you'll get some good returns. And just trying to understand here for myself and our, our audiences, I mean, how is it even possible to cancel this debt 
if much of it is being held by private investors, as we've heard from Bright and even some domestic investors too, how how can you actually cancel this debt? So this is where there's a bit of an impasse in terms of the um, negotiations for debt cancellation and where we're at um, in terms of global politics on this. So during the pandemic, the G20 set up a initiative called the Common Framework. The idea was that countries that are in debt distress or you know, are defaulting and need to have some level of debt cancellation, they could go through this process set up by the G20. But unfortunately, the five countries that have applied have not had any debts cancelled so far. And that's because private creditors have not been willing to come to the table to negotiate debt cancellation. And then when other countries um, who are also owed money to see that the private lenders are not cooperating, they're also reluctant to offer debt cancellation because if they do, they're worried that um, any restructuring that they offer to Global South countries will then just be releasing funds to pay back the private creditors. Um, so there's this reluctance to, yeah, use I guess, use public money to pay back and to reward risky lending from the private sector. And so that's why we need to reform the system. That's why we need to reform the debt system to enable and, un- and unblock these negotiations. Um, in the UK, we are actually campaigning for uh, new legislation to uh, compel private lenders to negotiate debt cancellation. Almost all debt contracts in the world are written either in New York law or in English law. And 90% of the lowest income countries' debt is written in English law. And so if we can win new legislation in both these jurisdictions, actually it could have a real impact in terms of enabling lower income countries to be able to uh, negotiate debt uh, cancellation and bring private creditors to the table to unblock that process. And Bright, back to you. Just just a quick response, if possible, to Heidi's assertion that pension holders on the whole are not going to be really affected by this. And also Heidi's explanation of how you can, in fact, try to cancel this debt and put pressure on private investors through changing laws. So, we, that, like I say, we have to be clear that there is diversity and depends on where you are standing from to assess what. If you are in the emerging markets, then your local government's debt is the safest instrument you can buy. So essentially, the argument that this is risky lending depends on if you are in New York and investing in Ghana or whether you are in Ghana investing in Kenya. So if you are in the global south, then investing in sovereign debt, basically buying treasury bills, buying government bonds, is the safest course of action. And typically... The pension funds and the, the mom and pops and the rest like the treasury bills and the treasury bonds because they are sold as the safest instruments. They are sold as completely without risk. So to argue that for all the investors, we should consider their actions as risky lending is not entirely to hold to the facts of the matter. I think the facts of the matter, rather, for a lot of investors in the global south who constitute the majority in all of these distressed markets, they were buying the safest instruments that were available, the safest uh, investment options that they had. So my argument is that this whole global campaign, which does not respect local diversity and all these nuances, is not viable. The last point I think that is very critical that we make is that we have been down this road before, and that is very important. We spent $125 billion of global resources giving debt relief and a lot of countries in the global south, especially in Africa, 33 countries or so benefited from massive debt relief. It opened the door for them to now begin to borrow commercially. Now, when you borrow commercially, the agenda there is that you're going to invest in areas that will return capital so that with that capital, 
having been retained, you are now in a position to be responsible for your own development. And I think we are forgetting that. We did not just borrow the money for borrowing sake. They borrow the money to invest in transforming the economies. Some have done better, some have not. And, and Bright, I know you've been a little bit critical about some expensive projects like the cathedral <laughs> that you mentioned earlier. Mm. Uh, do you think that that's part of the problem, this kind of wasteful Absolutely. spending? Last year, the government of Nigeria collected about $22 billion in taxes. They spent nearly $10 billion in subsidies for petroleum products, the bulk of which is consumed by rich people. Now, when you spend nearly 40% of all the money you collect in an investment that most analysts agree does not benefit the poor, and for the most part benefits the upper middle class and others with gas guzzling SUVs, you can then turn around and say, because we are spending so much on debt, we need debt cancellation. The first thing you have to do is to put your house in order. And putting your house in order is taking responsibility for the fiscal management of your economy. And I'm arguing that calling for blanket debt cancellation and refusing to look at the nuances on the ground in the global south is not doing anybody any service. And Heidi, can you come in here? Uh, I mean, are we rewarding bad behaviour by continuously relieving debt for the same countries? So we, we, I, mean, th- I think we often talk about the responsibility of the borrowing country. And there are, of course, there are issues about responsibility around fiscal management, as Brian mentioned. And of course, there are issues around corruption, as there are in lots of countries, and not least in my country, the UK, we also have issues around corruption. But irresponsible lending to corrupt governments is also part of the problem. And when these sorts of things happen, of course, it's the ordinary people in the global south that are impacted by this. And so we do need more democratic oversight to ensure that governments and elites are held to account. And in the area of debt, we're also calling for things like more loan transparency so that civil society organisations, uh, campaigners in countries can hold their own governments to account. But we also need to change this, the incentives in the debt system so that lenders aren't rewarded by huge profits for their irresponsible lending, because like I said, the impacts then just fall on ordinary people. I, I think one quick point I have to make is that when Heidi says, you know, in capitalism, you, you lose, you, you win some, you, you lose some. In the area of debt, unfortunately, there are covenants. You sign a contract. And that is why in private debt markets, if you, you, know, you don't service your mortgage, they come for your house. Now, if we were to use that same logic that, okay, it's risky and the rest of it, then we have to look at the covenants. Are the private lenders then justified in trying to seize assets of these countries because it's all capitalism? I don't think that is what Heidi is promoting because if Heidi was promoting that, then it would mean that these lenders will be also um, justified in selling their debt onto vulture funds who will then make an attempt to seize assets that belong to these countries. So we need to be very careful the analogies we draw and the metaphors we use. Heidi, just a very quick response, please. Yeah, so, so when we talk about risky lending, what we're talking about is reckless lending where where governments of the global south are being charged interest rates in the region of sort of six to ten percent at the same time when they are charging wealthy governments zero to one percent and so when you're charging at such high interest rates this is where the risk comes in because actually you are then loading on this substantial burden onto countries and therefore all it takes is a kind of an external shock for that country to then be in serious trouble around their debts So that's why we need to address this area of risky lending. And because we often talk about this problem through the lens of the borrower being at fault, actually, we don't have in the global debate, we don't have enough focus on the 
creditors on the, on the lenders and their responsibility as well, because actually this whole area of debt is, is a two-way street. It's, it's a borrower and it's the lender. But we often talk way more about the borrower's responsibility and not enough about the lender's responsibility. And actually introducing like the new laws, um, looking at how we can create a process for debt cancellation, redresses some of that balance between um, borrower and lender. All right. Thank you. Remember when I mentioned earlier we're going to have a global listener tuning into our conversation? I'm really happy that uh, Mamadou Sado Balde uh, from Guinea-Bissau, West Africa, uh, can join us. He is concerned about the geopolitical ramifications of debt and its impact on developing countries to effectively govern. Mamadou, please go ahead and ask your question. Uh, yes, thank you very much, um... Just to say, um, I learned a lot between the two sides, but I just I realized that there is a, maybe two sides of the same coin, where I see um, Heidi is maybe more focused on the responsibility of the lenders, and uh, Bright is more focused on like, what is the capacity of the, the debt management from the borrower's side. But now... Talking about the high risky and talking about the GDP growth of the country where you cannot have 8% of interest rate and then you have 2 or maybe 1% of GDP growth. So the gap is too high. So how do we feel this? I think uh, maybe we should look at how to interlink the responsibility of the lender side and also the responsibility of the borrower side. How do we interconnect it? to unlock economic prosperity in these countries. Heidi, how do we interconnect these two things? Yeah, so it's, like I said, I've already mentioned about legislation and kind of rules and processes to change the global debt system so that creditors who lend uh, irresponsibly to countries are made to take responsibility for that. Of course, there are other sources of funds for, for governments. So Wright's mentioned quite a bit about fiscal management and domestic taxation. And there's also domestic private lending. So that's governments lending from their own banks. And then there are also bilateral and multilateral external loans, which are often often lent at lower interest rates than the private sector. But of course, when there is too much debt already, then actually giving out um, more loans is probably not the answer without any debt cancellation, in which case there's also grants that we need to think about. But in the longer term, we also, sort of going back to what we were talking about earlier, we also need to see changes in the underlying global economy. We need to keep um, fighting for climate finance, climate reparations to enable wealthy countries to take responsibility for the climate emergency that they have created, but which the impacts are falling on global South countries first and hardest. We also need to rethink how we how we see aid, certainly in the, uh, in the global north, because actually the global north has only built its power and wealth off the back of colonialism. And we also need structural reform in the global economy um, around the rules around trade and, and tax to enable countries to build diversified and resilient economies that they can um, have the, the levels of income that they need to, to meet the needs of their people. And Bright, what are your thoughts on this? So three quick things. One is calling for lender responsibility sounds easy, but in practice is very difficult. For instance, are we suggesting that JP Morgan start to give lessons to the Ghanaian government on how to use its money? Are we suggesting that Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, go to Nigeria and try and influence how the Nigerian government spends the money it borrows? 
In fact, that is why we had a big difference between the multilateral official system with the World Bank and IMF being part of program design and then the commercial market. So in the commercial market, it's borrowed responsibility because you know what you're going to use the money for. So that is very important. Number two, there are technical opportunities to reduce the amount of um, uh, the amount that countries pay for debt. So, for instance, if you list in a bond in New York and you are willing to go through the SEC processes, which often is a bit more cumbersome, but for good reason to protect investors. Can you just explain, right, what the SEC is? It's the Securities and Exchanges Commission, which is a regulator okay. in the United States. Thanks. You you get the debt for le- about 1.5% less than if you list under English law in Europe. So those are technical reasons. The third issue, which is very important, is that Many a times, the risk that we talk about, which makes the interest rate go high, is due to fiscal mismanagement as well. So we have to recognize that it's not risky lending determined only by the lender, which is why uh, not all countries in Africa borrow at the same rate. The best-run countries borrow at a much lower rate. Okay, thank you so much. Mamadou, just really quickly, I just wanted to come back to Mamadou. Are you satisfied with those answers? Yes, I just want to um, maybe... Just to add something also, I think uh, uh, most of these low-income countries, their debt are in foreign currencies. So this also definitely impacts on the, the country debt when there is an inflation. And also, uh, Bright spoke about the programs that the country, the, the, you are depending on the lenders, then to, where you need to need, meet also the needs of your people. So I think we need to look at it into perspective of the specific context and say, okay, what do we need really to do for this country to graduate from this level to another level? And what should be the responsibility of the lender side where you should look at the interest rate, where you should look at the currency itself, where you look at also the market? So I think there's a, a lot of things that we need to come to the reality and see how we really should solve it together. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Mamadou. Thank you for listening in for those great points. I mean, before we wrap up this discussion and share our final thoughts, I just really want to take a moment to see if we found any common ground along the way. Heidi, let's begin with you. I mean, what have you heard from Bright today that you agree with? Yeah, I think I don't disagree with Bright about individual countries have their different contexts. And of course, they've got their own domestic politics, their own domestic economic contexts. And uh, and so, for example, my organisation, we work with civil society groups based in countries that are experiencing debt crisis in order to amplify their demands. So this is not just us coming as a, a British organisation saying this is what people in the Global South want. We do work with people in the Global South to centre their voices in our campaign and to amplify their voices in spaces that we can leverage. And, and, and the reason why I don't talk so much about domestic uh, politics is because of you know, the fact that I'm not in that country and I don't understand the nuances of it. And it's for the people of that country to, to figure out. So I think that's probably where th- there is probably some area of um, agreement there. Thank you. And Bright, what about you? I mean, how do you respond to Heidi's arguments during this discussion? Are there any points she's made that resonate with you? Yes, I mean, the, the issue around perhaps enhanced finding a way to make lenders um, pay more attention to how the money is getting used. I don't know how you're going to do it without getting accused of colonialism, but maybe that is where, um, of all the things that Heidi has said, there is room for creativity to think through what kind of global ESG framework can increase responsibility of lenders. 
Perhaps there's another point where you might find common ground here. Do you both agree that developing countries should aim to borrow less money overall? I mean, the logic is simple. If the less you borrow, the less debt you'll have. Do you think this is a reasonable goal, in your opinion, Heidi? Um, I think that, uh, I, that that would be the ideal, that, gov- that Global South governments can actually meet, uh, not have to rely on external borrowing in order to meet their obligations uh, in terms of their public finances. But it would need to happen hand in hand with a transformation in the global economy so that they can uh, actually set the rules of the global economy are not stacked against them um, so that they can engage fairly um, in the in the global economy. And if you know we have reforms around how we see tax and trade and illicit financial flows, aid, reparations, if we have all of those and climate reparations, if we have all of those things in place, then I think that there we could get to a stage one day where countries are not having to rely on external borrowing to, to make ends meet. Thank you so much, Heidi. And, and Bright, what do you think? Do you think this is a reasonable goal or possibly impossible to achieve? <laughs> well, I think countries obviously should borrow up to their borrowing capacity. Essentially, how well you're growing and how productive you are as a country should determine how you, you borrow. The second point, which is that we need to make it possible for countries to rely on grants and concessional finance for the things that they're not likely to generate commercial return. So no country should borrow in order to run school feeding programs or to run water purification programs because they just don't return money in good time to pay investors. And being able to create the conditions globally for that to happen, I think, would be very important. And I doubt that Heidi would disagree. I mean, let's imagine a scenario where all debts, whether owned by private investors or multilateral institutions, are cancelled. How can we ensure that countries don't end up accumulating more debt once again, how can, how can we make sure that happens? So, the, so this this happened on a large scale in the 2000s. There was a massive campaign for debt cancellation in the 1990s. In the 2000s, eventually a scheme was set up to cancel the debts of 36 countries. $130 billion of worth of debt was wiped out. And there was significant you know, material difference for countries who benefited from this in terms of um, massive forward advances for education and healthcare and so on. But what didn't happen as part of that debt cancellation was any change to the underlying debt system. Um, so this time, as, as a debt justice campaigner, we are campaigning for debt cancellation, but to do it in a way that prevents future debt crises so that we don't get into another situation like this in 20 years' time. And this is where it's really important to, to, to really think about um, legislating in the two jurisdictions of New York and the UK. And this is not just me saying this, actually, I am the, the president of IMF and president of the World Bank um, and the African finance ministers have also called for this legislation in these two jurisdictions to help prevent future crises. Okay, thank you so much for that. And and Bright, I'd like to hear your final thoughts. I mean, wouldn't these indebted countries, particularly ones suffering from climate change, benefit from being relieved of their debts, burdens? I mean, after all, many of the challenges are structural, as Heidi pointed out. Why not advocate for debt cancellation? in such cases? I think we have to also be willing to acknowledge Global South responsibility where it makes sense. I think that sometimes the challenge is that we almost never um, uh, place any emphasis on that. And I think unless we have that nuance and that flavor in the discussion, it gets very difficult for us to come to any real solutions that might actually have a lasting impact. Many thanks to our guests, Bright Simmons and Heidi Chow.
Bright is a policy analyst with the Amani Centre in Accra, Ghana. Heidi Chow is the executive director of the UK-based Debt Justice. Thanks for listening to Doha Debates. I'm your host, Nazanin Mashiri. Doha Debates is a production of Qatar Foundation. Our podcast is produced by FP Studios and Doha Debates. Our producers include Daniel Dazi, Rosie Julin, Claudia Tady, and Katrine Damadi. Special thanks to James Woolley, FP Studios Managing Director is Rob Sachs. Our executive producers are Jafid Weeks, Amjad Atala, and Jiga Mehta. To learn more about Doha Debates, please head to dohadebates.com, where you can find out more about our other podcasts, short films, upcoming events, and a lot more. And please, if you like our podcast, please follow and share your reviews. Thanks for listening.